You ready? Yeah. You ready? All right, hold on. Here we go. What's up, y'all? You're listening to the Maggie Nation podcast. I'm Alex Miller with the Eagle, joined by Travis Brown of the Eagle. Travis, how goes it on a Wednesday afternoon? You know, it's bright, it's sunny. I probably should be on the golf course, but I'm here with you, but that's okay. I, I enjoy your company. So last week on our podcast, we had Trevor Warner. You sat down with him inside Bluebell Park previewing AM's baseball season. We'll talk about AM's opening weekend here in a bit. But I have a confession and a criticism because at the end of your interview, you asked Trevor why he does not eat beef. And he explained that that's because when he watched Rocky as a kid, he saw Rocky, you know, practicing uh, for, for the great Apollo Creed on, on a, on a beef carcass. And that's why he doesn't eat beef. I have to admit I had never seen Rocky before, so I had to watch it. And after watching it, I, I have to say it is not a good movie. It is. It is actually not a good movie. I mean, he might come into your house and beat you up tonight for saying that. I mean, he might, but like it, 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 it actually was not a good movie. And, you know, maybe my expectations were too high because it's what, like 50 years old almost. But like it was a bad movie. So, well, a confession and a complaint. If you have uh, any thoughts on that and Alex Miller's thoughts on Rocky, you can email that to robert.cessna at theeagle.com. There you go. Well, in other news, A&M men's basketball is on a tear. They've won six straight now after Tuesday's win against Tennessee. Travis, uh, you know, that might have been maybe the biggest game, the biggest win of A&M's season. And, and now they've really positioned themselves well coming into this last three games, but they got to get past that Mississippi two-step over the next few days as well. Yeah, I mean, it was the biggest win of their season because they uh, um, I, I don't think I that was one that I actually had them winning um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and so it's another quad one win. It's a, a win against the 11th ranked team in the nation. I, I think barring a cata- cataclysmic um, just falling apart in the last two games where they lose to Mississippi State and Ole Miss and Alabama. I mean, even in that case, I still think that they're in the NCAA tournament field, um, especially because of that win. They were in it certainly before that win, but I think that was kind of the the lock that put them in there. You know, I I kind of wonder, you know, I think maybe last week if we were talking about Anaman's basketball, we might have asked ourselves, can AM win the SEC now? Now, with where they're positioned and looking at maybe a potential showdown against Alabama in that regular season finale, Travis, can and will AM win the Southeastern Conference, the regular season crown? So it's looking like if AM can take care of business against Mississippi State, uh, and then certainly they should be able to take care of business against Ole Miss, who has not been good this season. It looks like it's going to come down to a season finale against uh, Alabama, which is exactly what um, probably the SEC would not have expected, but are probably pretty pleased about that. They'll have that kind of high drama on the last Saturday of the season. You, you would have to think, and I haven't looked across the country of that weekend, but you have to think if there's one game to play for the SEC crown, um, then that would uh, you think college game day might be there and, um, it it yeah. could be a, a really big event for um, for A&M and, and, and uh, for Alabama and for the SEC. Uh, that being said, it could be taken care of 
on the other end of things because um, Alabama has four games. They play tonight, so they're a, a game behind the Aggies. Um, and they have South Carolina, which they should win tonight easily. Uh, but then they have a, the stretch of Arkansas, Auburn, and Texas A&M, which is a much harder stretch than the Aggies have to play. Oh, yeah. they, they've already lost. A&M's already lost to Arkansas once. Uh, but then they beat Arkansas once and and took the season series against Auburn. Um, and then you have, of course, the Alabama-Auburn um, rivalry, the kind of little Iron Bowl matchup there. Um, Alabama has already beat Arkansas this year, uh, 84 to 69, and beat Auburn 77 to 69. So um, they already have two, two wins there. But that is – no, excuse me, those are both home for Alabama too. So – a little bit of an easier stretch there. I would think just looking at things. And if you're kind of a, a betting person, I would think A&M would have a would better odds at, at being the team um, to, to have the, the, the undefeated record in this small little stretch heading into that last game uh, than Alabama would. And um, then it just comes down to one game and that that's a lot of fun. Well, Anum's certainly going to have a tough matchup on Saturday. They got to get over the hump per se at the hump. They got to go at, at Mississippi state. This seems to kind of maybe have trap game written all over it. And, and, you know, Mississippi state's on, they're squarely on the bubble. They, they need a win over a team like A&M to help, you know, kind of bolster their resume as they try and sneak into the big dance. Yeah. They've had two overtime losses or excuse me, an overtime win and an overtime loss uh, in their last two games. Um, here this season. I mean, they have a pretty decent resume considering um, they, they, you know, they, they got that uh, quad one win in the uh, SEC big 12 uh, challenge against TCU. Um, they have uh, a win over Missouri. They have a win over Arkansas. Their, their resume is, is, is kind of down the middle there. Um, but yeah, it's going to be an interesting matchup. They're a good, and again, a good defensive team, actually the number five, uh, defense in the nation. If you look at Ken Palm, which is, you know, they AM just beat Tennessee, which is uh, the number one, but they AM was at home. Just Mississippi State is not a very good offensive team. Um, ranked 178th by Ken Palm in adjusted efficiency. Um, they're one of the last in the country in three point percentage, which, as we know, with how AM plays defense, one of the keys if you want to take down AM is to get hot from behind the arc. Uh, and they're really terrible at free throw percentage, uh, one of the worst in the country at, at free throw percentage. But um, they're going to uh, get some offensive rebounds and they're going to play good defense. So, uh, you know, here's the thing that's been interesting about AM. Uh, they've been winning these games uh, and they've followed their recipe. But in all reality, they have not been shooting the ball very well the last few games. Um, they, they're, they're, I mean, last night they needed, uh, a season high and, in, in free, uh, uh, or they needed, uh, excuse me, Julius Marvel and Wade Taylor to have season highs in both free throw attempts and three th- free throw makes, uh, to help put down the, the, the volunteers. Uh, and so they probably need to get pick up uh, a little bit of steam, um, in the actual field goal percentage, um, a portion of, of, uh, the, their stat line. I'm, I'm trying to pull up here their, their last five games. Um, I mean, just in general, their, their, uh, shooting percentage over the last five games is, um, 
well, their effective field goal percentage, which in- includes the uh, the amount that three pointers play into having a little bit more uh, point production. They're uh, 291st at 48%. Um, and uh, I'm just trying to see their, their uh, general uh, free throw percentage. Anyway, it's, it's not been great over the last five games. I mean, that's down, um, a little bit from their overall season percentage. So anyway, that being said, need to shoot a little bit better from the field, but the way you mitigate that is offensive rebounds and, uh, getting the free throw line. You know, some that was discussed on the TV broadcasts last night was watching a little bit from home, you know, they, they asked the question, is Wade Taylor the best point guard in the SEC right now? I mean, he he has really turned a corner in his game, especially through conference play this season. Yeah, there was Opti, uh, Optima Stats tweeted out a thing last night that, you know, only some of those really deep analytical uh, uh, websites can can track. And so uh, for excuse me, per Opta Stats, Wade Taylor... Uh, is one of two Division One players in the last 25 years to have a five-game span with 100-plus points, 40-plus free throws made, 20-plus assists, 5-plus three, 15-plus three-pointers made, 10-plus steals, 45% three-point shooting, and a 90% free throw shooting. Did, did, I don't know. Did you see this tweet, Alex? Uh, yeah, and I, okay. I I was pretty impressed at who the other player was. <laughs> the other guy is none other than Steph Curry of Davidson and Golden State Warrior fame. So I think anytime that you're included in uh, the category with with that guy, uh, you're you're probably doing stuff doing stuff pretty right. Yeah, n- n- for sure. I mean, that was I, I saw that and I was like, oh wow, that's a that's a pretty impressive feat. And you know. Maybe another impressive feat is just the overall turnaround that Anum's had on the men's basketball side. You know, their their net ranking is 23 right now. They're up to six quad one wins. Uh, still have two quad one games to go. You know, Travis, I had a buddy text me last night. He said, I, get, I need to get a shirt that says I was at Wofford. I mean, this is not the same team that AM was, uh, you know, just two months ago when they lost at home to Wofford. I don't know who it was. Someone said that their their kid was talking about someone on Twitter, and I'm sure it's someone who we know was saying that their kid was like, "What's happening to this basketball team?" I mean, like months ago they lost to Waffles. Um, so <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's been quite the turnaround. Here's the thing: I mean, there's been several reasons why this team has turned around. One of which is they completely revamped the way they do practice, the way they schedule practice, the way they um, kind of work through their schedule and everything as a program. And, and they, they seem to say that that has really helped. Um, but I, I, I think that there's a couple things at play here. First, I think that in this age of transfer portal and where uh, college basketball teams are seemingly going to completely revamp half, if not more of their roster every year, uh, the, the, the key to success is the race to who can gel, who can uh, learn the system, who can form chemistry the quickest. And I think if you're looking at this AM team, it, it it might not have taken them as long as it did last year, but it still probably took them longer than the average successful team this year. And I think that over that Christmas break, um, that that loss to Walford was a little bit of a wake up call. And I think that that is kind of when things started to gel. People started to kind of fall into the system and understand what they're doing. I mean, look at a guy like Dexter Dennis. I did a feature on him. 
he didn't even wasn't even able to come in uh, and start working with the team until the first day of classes because he had to finish an internship uh, to get the right credits and transcripts and things uh, to 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 transfer over to Texas A and M. So while everyone else on the team was already uh, at you know in Aggieland doing their off season workouts and getting the playbooks and whatnot, Dexter Dennis was off doing this internship, and it wasn't until the first day of class. So he was about two months behind. Uh, and he said it, it took him about two months to get caught up, which puts you right at about Christmas. And, uh, you know, I, I talked to Mark French earlier this week, a former AM basketball player on one of our videos. And and I mean, just by the stats alone, Dexter Dennis might not be the guy who's going to put the best stats on all of the columns. He might not be the leading scorer. He might not be the leading rebounder. But you can kind of tell how the team is going he's a good litmus test of the team because usually when he's doing better things, it's trending towards the whole team doing better things. When he's not playing so great, it's trending towards the team that's not necessarily playing so great. And so um, I think that that's just an example of that needing to kind of get integrated in the system and uh, building cohesion um, amongst the team that that's um that's just a, a a part of this age of college basketball. And one other thing, too, that has kind of emerged about this team that was a little bit present there earlier, but has become more relevant is the fact that this is as deep as an a, a team as AM has had since probably the last time that they were in the NCAA tournament, in the sense that you, you there's not that one guy that you're gonna go over and say, well, he needs to be the guy to be the high point man, or else this is going to go really bad. Last year, that was uh, Quentin Jackson. You needed to have Quentin Jackson scoring. If he wasn't scoring, you weren't going to get the production from everyone else to be able to make the math work to win the game. But this season, it could be Wade Taylor. It could be Tyrese Radford. It could even be Dexter Dennis, or then it could be Julius Marble or Henry Coleman. Any of that really, that starting lineup uh, could be in there and step up. And then when you look at rebounding and how much emphasis this team puts on rebounding, it could be Julius Marble. It could be Henry Coleman, but it could also be Dexter Dennis or Tyrese Radford or uh, Anderson Garcia, for that matter, coming on as one of the six men uh, off the bench. So if as you as we kind of saw last night, if some guys are Tyrese Radford never got into the rhythm of the game, Dexter Dennis was there defensively and he, he pulled in some rebounds, but he, that his offense didn't click in like the same way it did. At Missouri, Henry Coleman was pretty much negated from the game because of uh, foul trouble. And it basically landed on Julius Marble and um, uh, uh, Wade Taylor to to uh, try to carry this team. And they were able to do it because they have that depth. I think that those are some of the key components to uh, the, the turnaround and what a has been able to do. Well, hey, last week, Travis, there was some big news from the 12th Man Foundation. They announced 12th Man Plus Fund. It's an NIL fund for AM athletes and kind of seems to be a novelty of sorts. So, Travis, can you just kind of walk us through what this really entails and, and you know, what it really is about? Yeah, it's it's as one lawyer put it, it's pretty cutting edge because it's the first time that an NIL collective fund, you know, insert your word of choice here, uh, has been tied in with the main booster club organization 
of that that's that has an association with an athletic department. Uh, save for maybe Arkansas, but the mechanics of the one at Arkansas work just a little bit different than this one. So uh, what that means is this is a, a an organization. Uh, the Twelve Man Foundation, of course, is a five hundred one c three nonprofit um, with the mission of providing scholarships and funding for student athletes and student athlete facilities and programs. This will operate under that 501c umbrella of the 12th Man Foundation. And so because of that, donors who donate it will get a tax receipt, which there's some interesting wording on the website, but ultimately should uh, result in a tax deduction. And then because A&M's 12th, or excuse me, the 12th Man Foundation is the main ticket selling uh, or part of of the whole process. They manage ticket selling for the athletic department. Priority points can be a part of it. And of course, priority points are um, uh, or uh, uh, things you can collect to, if AM goes to a big game where tickets are limited, people with more priority points uh, get their first shot at the ticket. So um, the Arkansas one uh, works a little bit different because that is a fund that's tied in with their nonprofit, their, their uh, nonprofit booster club. But the boosters are paying into the fund and that fund will then pay student athletes to go do work for different charitable organizations around the state. This one, it's paying athletes to market for the 12th Man Foundation through social media posts, uh, uh, speaking engagements, meet and greets, autograph signings, things like that. It's it's doing marketing and promotion for the 12th Man Foundation itself. So uh, that's a little bit of, of what it is. You know, you talked with some legal experts about this. You can read about it, of course, on the eagle.com. It was in Wednesday's paper. Hey, the 12th Man Foundation, or excuse me, the 12th Man Plus Fund, it, it, it seems to check off the boxes to be, you know, legal and, and abiding by regulations uh, set by, you know, the NCAA and, and state laws as well. Yeah. You know, when this first came out, it, it kind of felt like it didn't pass the smell test. Like, this is so close to the athletic department. And of course, by the, the Senate bill that made NIL legal, part of the, the wording of that bill said that schools, athletic departments can't get involved with brokering deals with the athletes or making deals directly with student athletes to, to represent the university or be in the university's interests. Uh, Cause then things could get a little shady with recruiting and that that's a whole nother rabbit trail. But because the 12th man foundation is its own 501 C three independent of the uh, university and the athletic department. And what that means is they're not receiving any funding directly from the university or the athletic department. People who are employed by the 12th Man Foundation and people who are on their board of trustees aren't also employed by Texas A&M or the A&M athletic department. It, it maintains its independence as a little island uh, surrounded kind of by the A&M athletics uh, uh, atmosphere. Uh, and so it can then take in uh, donations and and also broker deals with student athletes to to be in the NIL space. That's what the legal experts said about the Senate bill. Um, the other question that's at play here, and it's kind of been a gray area and a little bit of a hot button topic around NIL and collectives or funds is, okay, so these funds are signing up as 501c3s, which according to the IRS, are tax-exempt charitable organizations. Well, the definition of charitable is kind of in play here because is donors giving money to a fund where that fund then goes and becomes taxable income 
to student athletes, is that really charitable? And so when I talked to a few lawyers, they said that right now that's a gray area. There's a process to all this. So if you wanted to start a 501c3, you're going to file a form with the IRS and say, this is who we are. This is our mission. This is why we're a charity and we need tax exempt status. Well, there's multiple ways to do that. But one of them uh, is a is a short form uh, where you don't really have to put much background or anything like that. And, and the reason there is a short form, and this is kind of the way most people go, is that the IRS, according to the IRS, receives 95,000 uh, petitions or filings to four nonprofits each year. So like they're inundated. And so they're not going to necessarily put a whole lot of scrutiny into some of these organizations that are filing with them. So as uh, uh, collectives or funds that have filed for 501c3s that are just completely third party, that are alumni based, nothing like the 12th Man Plus Fund, uh, those have been getting through pretty easily because they isn't much scrutiny or or IRS uh, attention to those yet. Now, these lawyers say, is there going to be a time soon when maybe these organizations are going to be audited by the IRS and that definition of a charitable organization is going to be tested? Maybe that's a possibility. But on the horizon, too, is an, is an act filed by uh, John Thune, senator out of uh, South Dakota, uh, that the whole point of the law is just that collectives whose missions or 501c3s whose main charitable mission is just for name, image, and likeness compensation for college athletes, you can't receive tax deductions from those. There hasn't been any movement on that. That was filed in September of last year. And so it's there's a lot, of course, going on in Washington right now. Whether that'll get a priority or not, it's here to say. I talked to Travis Dabney after his the, the 12th, Man, uh, 12th Man Productions, 12th Man Foundation uh, CEO and president. And he said, if this bill passed. If there is new legislation that is filed, they will, of course, pivot with that and uh, keep it going. But actually, the thing that kind of seemed the fishiest, if you were to kind of the thing that seemed questionable the most about the 12th Man Plus Fund, and that is its tie with the 12th Man Foundation, that's actually the thing that gives it better legal standing when it comes to if it's a charitable organization or not, because the the 12th Man Foundation has been around for uh, since 1950. Uh, and so the definition of giving money to help student athletes, help facilities at an academic um, institution, that's pretty much uh, past all the rigors of if it's a charity. That's that's uh, widely recognized as a charitable organization. As long as the 12th Man Fund, the PLUS Fund, contributions towards NIL remain less than the contributions towards other university and well-established charitable giving, it should be fine. But if all of a sudden in a couple of years time, the 12th Man Foundation is taking in $50 million that's going all towards NIL, but their work towards university facilities and programs and scholarships dwindles down to $5 million, well, then that's kind of getting into that territory of, okay, well, what's the real mission? What's the main focus of this? And as the history shows with the 12th Man Foundation, that isn't seemingly going to be likely. Their their main source of revenue and or excuse me, of donations and 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 giving back towards the university should be towards facility scholarships and things like that. It's probably actually going to hold better legal uh, standing than some of these other collectives funds that are third party. Should any of that scrutiny come to pass 
from a legal sense. So uh, it is on the cutting edge. It does seem like um, it actually is going to be more of the future of what this looks like. And these legal experts said, uh, look at other universities to maybe be doing something similar. Now, the thing that why AM could be on the cutting edge of this is that they've had that separation of the booster club and the athletic department for a very long time as it's being its own independent 501c3. There's plenty of universities around the country where the booster club is tied in with the athletic department pretty directly. And in those cases, they can't, depending on the state laws and the NCAA rules, they, they can't do this. They're going to have to go through the process of separating, making their booster club independent before then they can go down this path of adding uh, an NIL collective. But don't be surprised if in the next years you see a lot more of this happening around the country. Well, Travis, let's round third and head home on this episode of the podcast. Let's talk a little a and baseball. Seems like the Aggies had a little bit of a mix of good and bad during these first four games of the season. Uh, what'd you kind of take away from, from opening weekend? I think the good is that the bats still seem to be there um, and and that they have an offense that can uh, generate runs in multiple ways. You look at the opening night, it was a little more singles, doubles, getting them around the bases, moving guys. Saturday, it was all about the long ball with uh, uh, Austin Bose and Jake LaViolette um, uh, just launching some, some moonshots out there at Bluebell Park. And Man, they have some really good freshmen. I think there was a lot of talk about the veteran presence that's coming back from that team that went to Omaha last year. But you look at guys like Jace Laviolette out in the outfield, uh, 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 Carson Wells in the outfield, too, having to take over for uh, Brett Minnick. Um, uh, 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 I just forgot his name, the catcher. Uh, that The catcher that, that's behind, that's been Coffer, behind. Max Coffer? Max Coffer, yeah, behind home plate, uh, who, who has done a really good job. Uh, and then um, uh, Justin Lambert uh, out of the bullpen on Saturday did a really good job as well. The freshmen have proven that they uh, can play at, at this level of baseball, at least in the non-conference sense so far. And that's going to be reassuring because some of these guys are going to get pushed. I think that AM had a gr- really good team last year. I mean, a good enough to be in the national semifinals. But I think what failed them is depth, not only in the pitching sense, but you know, if if someone was going through a little bit of a, a slump, there really wasn't anybody pushing anybody from uh from from behind in in competition wise in the in the field. And I think you can see that some of these guys are going to be pushing guys uh for for spots in the batting order. And so um, those are some of the positives. Some of the negatives that you've seen. Well, first let's start in the first game, and that is. Brett Minnick, a guy who um, was returning from last year, decided not to go to the pro level because of an injury he sustained middle to end of last year, a groin injury that uh, he played through throughout the end of the season, got surgery right at the end of the season, didn't do summer ball and or fall ball, and was coming back saying, okay, this is going to be a season that I'm going to be back 100% healthy and be able to go through the season and, and try to earn a, a good spot in the draft. And first game, he slides into head first into first on a close play and ends up breaking his thumb. Uh, Schlossnagel said it could be um, six weeks or, or or so. Usually what that means is six weeks or so till he can get back into kind of practice, into maybe swinging a bat. Um, if you look at, I know it's a, a little bit of a different injury uh, than, than a broken thumb, but that handmade, broken handmade bone that Trevor Warner had, when you look at the length of time he was supposed to be out. It took him a couple extra weeks beyond that to be like 
back in the lineup and, and back to where he could actually perform. Uh, and, and then even when you're back in the lineup, getting your timing back and things, it's a little bit um, harder in baseball. I want to take a little in quick. Conference play, nonetheless. <laughs> to say that again. I said in the middle of conference play too, probably nonetheless. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and maybe towards the even the end of conference play, we'll have to see how that all shakes out. Uh, I'm going to take a little bit of a tangent here because it's a conversation I've seen had on social media a lot this week. And it's kind of that question of why dive at first base? I'm not a big proponent of it uh, because there is more of a chance to get hurt. Um, you know, when you dive in um, head first on other bases, you're going to dive in well in front of the bag and slide to where your hands touch the bag. You're not kind of making a last minute choice to jump down on top of the bag um, where a first baseman might be searching for the base. And, and there's a lot that can go wrong there. The reason you would argue to do it, it's not to try to get there faster. In fact, it, it might actually be a little bit slower, but if a position player is going to be making a tough play that requires a tough throw, there's a chance that the throw could bring the first baseman off the bag. And then his only recourse is to try to apply a tag to the player. Well, if you go low, they're going to have to try to make the crazy catch and then come down to put the tag on. And the chances of them doing all that quickly are slim to none. So it's more of a chance of, okay, they're going to have to make a tough play to get me out here. Um, I'm going to get down so that if there's a chance the throw brings the first baseman off the bag, he's not going to be able to make a tag on me. And, and it was a play where I believe the ball got under the first baseman's glove and the second baseman was having to range all the way over almost to the uh, the first baseline to make the play and make the throw. I can see the thought process of it, but that's kind of one of those moves you save for like a region final or, you know, towards the end of the season when you're fighting for a conference title. That's not a opening day weekend kind of move that that you need to be making. And so I wish, wish, wish him the best. I hope he gets back soon. That's kind of the breakdown of what's that's happening. And, and then uh, pitching beyond Nathan Detmer, which was another plus. I forgot to mention Nathan Detmer looked outstanding uh, in that first game. But the pitching beyond Nathan Detmer, a little bit up and down. Last night they lost to Lamar. The bullpen uh, failed them a little bit. And, uh, you know, when you score uh, as many runs as they did last night, that should be enough to win a game, especially a Tuesday game. Once they got to the bullpen, they need to kind of figure things out a little bit there. But it's still early in the season as even, you know, we talked a lot about basketball and that loss to Wofford and, you know, non-conference schedule, uh, a Tuesday loss usually doesn't mean a whole lot. Um, there's not a whole lot of stake put into uh, Tuesday games. Now that they lose several Tuesday games, that's where you could start seeing some trouble, but not, not a whole lot to put into losing a Tuesday game. They lost, I can't remember who was last year. They, they, uh, they lost a, uh, one of these Tuesday games, to, uh, oh, to Houston, that's kind of what kickstarted the whole Pringles thing. I remember right, that. Right, that's, I mean, yeah, and Houston wasn't necessarily a great team last year, you know, so, um, yeah, that's 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 kind of the gist of it. It's still really early. They're still trying to figure out who's going to fall into what role uh, and, and what the lineups look like, what the rotations look like. I think last year was a good case in point. They went through the first month of the season really kind of sputtering, and it wasn't until really conference play hit. Um, that they kind of found their stride, not too dissimilar to this A&M men's basketball team. So um, I think that 
I think everything should be fine with AM, but we'll see how things start to shake out a little bit. Travis, I want to close with this. Something else on the baseball side of things that I think was a point of conversation, maybe kind of across the country, was the new pace of play rules and you know the the pitch clock and some of that. You know, what do you think of them? What did the players and coaches maybe think of them and just how they're trying to, you know, adapt to those, you know, ongoing changes. It seems like there's a new rule change every year to try and, you know, tweak pace of play. Yeah, I think that we're going to need a little bit of a bigger sample size, but I, I think that there's some interesting pieces to this. I think if you look at the Friday night, the 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 opener of the whole thing, if it wasn't for an, an eighth inning that AM's bats came alive again, I mean, they were on pace to be just a little bit over a two-hour game, and that that's fantastic. I, I do think that um, there's something to college baseball needing to uh, tighten things up a little bit time-wise. I mean, if you look at AM last year, they were an offense that they stressed getting deep in counts, taking pitches, getting deep in counts, because the, the analytics said swinging earlier in at bats, you're just doesn't have a bigger success rate. So you have like the entire lineup going up there uh, looking to uh, take pitches that that's a recipe for four hour darn near five hour games and nobody wants or or needs that. So I think that there is an issue to be addressed here. I, I'll be interested to see how much some of this stuff helps and how much it, it's, it's ruled the right way. If you look, the umpires are giving signals to the press box where they're keeping track of this 20 second clock. And I guess to, to reset a little bit, uh, what, what is going on is there's a 20 second clock in between pitches now where um, that starts as soon as the pitcher is on the rubber and the batter is in the batter's box, the clock starts. The pitcher has 20 seconds to make the pitch. Um, a, a pitcher can call a step off the rubber or a batter can call time once in the at bat. If they do it the second time, the pitcher is given a ball, the batter is given a strike. Uh, and, and so, um, how the umpire rules when both are on the base, when the clock should be reset, uh, technically the pitcher is supposed to give the batter the first 10 seconds to get settled. And then kind of the second 10 seconds are his, as you saw in some of the games, A&M has kind of been working with their pitchers to like get on the rubber pitch to try to catch the batter off guard. And talking to some of the A&M batters through fall and spring practice this year, they said there was times where they kind of got in the base and kind of had their hand, you know, touch the base, had their hand back, you know, whatever. And the pitch was coming. Uh, And it kind of feels like slow pitch softball almost where they're trying to get them off the rhythm. I think that it, if it's done right, it's going to a help the pitching a lot, but B if both teams are trying to work quickly like that, then sure, it's going to um, increase pace of play. But I, I don't know if if there's a lot of runners on base. You, it doesn't. There's no rule on how many times you can make pickoff moves. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't seem like it's going to shave a whole lot of time off. Uh, and I don't know if how much it's affecting how the gameplay goes is worth how little time it potentially would take off. Um, I I think that maybe setting a time limit on video reviews might be a better way to go about that. The other thing that is instituted has been instituted this year is that the, these uh, wristbands where they can use to call pitches that AM is using it's, it's everyone on the field has one pitcher catcher, 
all of the defensive players and there's like a remote control in the dugout and they can indicate what pitch they want. So everyone on the field can look down at the wristband and see uh, what pitch is going to be called and they they can throw it. So it, it does help the defenders a little bit in that they kind of know what pitch is coming. If it's a fastball outside, they might suspect that it's going to be uh, a hit opposite field, be ready for that, um, those kinds of things. But the A, the defenders don't need to start shading towards the opposite field to help tip off the batter of where the, what kind of pitch uh, might be coming. Schlossnagel, I don't think is super in favor of it. He was fine with just the earpiece, the catcher has and, and communicating that way. But he said he'd rather look at what was the worst possible thing that could happen doing that. And how do you mitigate that? And he said, give a fresh freshman pitcher and it's a, Bases loaded, three, two count, bottom of the ninth. You're in Alex's box, and your pitcher has already stepped off once, and he doesn't get the sign. So what does he do? Just throw throw something back there and hope the catcher gets it? Or, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting situation. So he said he'd rather go with the wristbands where they know, everyone knows what pitch is coming, so that there is some little breakdown Every, they know what's coming, and there's not that instance of the freshman pitcher not knowing what to do because of these new rules and everything like that. Ask me that question again in a podcast in a couple months, and let's get a little bit bigger case study on how this is moving the games along. I have a feeling that more times than not, it's going to feel about the same, but there will be a few games that speed through maybe a little bit faster than normal. Fair enough. We'll definitely revisit this whole subject, but I think that's all the time we have. So Travis, uh, any final words? No, you know, uh, it's weird being 87 degrees in February. Yeah. What the Um, heck? This is odd, (laughs) but that means that it's just getting a little bit closer feeling to uh, baseball weather, which you got to love when it's actually warm in Bluebell Park and not like feeling like it's 20 below zero. And uh, it's pretty yeah. fun. And you got uh, it's it's fun from an AM fans perspective when you got so much good stuff going on on campus from a trying to get to this stuff perspective. It took me almost it took me over an hour last night to get to Rio Arena because baseball and basketball were playing at the same time as students were getting out. And that's not fun. So maybe uh, maybe a good mix of fun and not fun going on right now. Fair enough. Well, thanks for tuning into this week's episode of the My Nation podcast. Be sure to check the eagle.com for all of our coverage on Texas AM Sports. Travis Brown, I'm Alex Miller. We'll see you next week. It seems like every day, everything just has a way, a way to must have seems. But if we don't watch what we're doing, our hearts will get ruined by silly things. Good love ain't easy, girl, we know that's true. If we want to keep it, we got to watch everything that we do. Make sure you're sticking with me. But I wanna make sure that we'll be all that we can be, all that we can be.